I'll be reading from chapter 5, verses 16 to 23. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, self-ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the word of the Lord. I love movies, as most of you do, and uh, Oscar nights tonight. Some of you are going to huddle around the TV for hours on end. My lovely wife will do that. I don't have uh, the patience to stay through the whole thing, but she does. She just loves it. It's a study of culture, I think, for her, but also movies. And I like movies. Most of them never make the Oscars. Like, one of the ones I really like is Back to the Future. Yeah, not an Oscar movie. But I love that movie. Um, One of the reasons I love the movie, I don't know if you remember this, but in the movie, Back to the Future, 2015, the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. Uh Now, if you're a Cub fan, that's worth rejoicing about. I'm going to see that movie all through the baseball season just hoping that it'll happen. But there's other reasons I like uh, movies in a particular Back to the Future. I I like thinking about what it must have been like, right? I love that, which is why I loved history and taught it um, for a number of years. I just love that, thinking about what was it really like, right? So last week we talked about how it's difficult to read an epistle, namely a letter from someone, without hearing the other side of the conversation. It's kind of like a one-way phone conversation. But it's also difficult on occasion to understand what an author is trying to communicate if you can't figure out what it was like, right? What the conditions were, what the place was like, what the issues were and how they're defined by a particular time and place. But we do our best. And on this occasion, I'll do my best. Paul is writing to a church in Galatia, probably in the southern section of Asia Minor. And as a matter of fact, he's writing to a church that he has established. Maybe by this time, churches in Galatia that he's established. When he went there to establish these churches, they were overwhelmed with delight concerning the gospel that he communicated, this thing about Jesus Christ, this thing that opened up the good news to everyone, Jews and Greeks alike, everyone. And they accepted that gospel and followed Paul's words and lived their life in accordance with it. And they were transformed. It was, it was virtually a revolution in Galatia for these people. Paul says that while he was there, uh, he was not well. We're not sure exactly what it means. But he said, you know, that could have annoyed you, but it didn't annoy you. You accepted me completely, even in my sickness or illness or whatever it was. At one point he said, you uh, accepted me so wholeheartedly that I think it's correct to say you would have plucked out your eyes for me. 
That's pretty severe. Well, maybe it's a reference to Paul's thorn in the flesh, though we don't know for sure what it is. Some people think it was a a lack of vision. He couldn't see very well. I, I don't know if that was it. All I know is Paul says, you loved me that deeply. Okay, those are the people he's writing to. These are not strangers. These are people he loved. They were also people, he said, who received my gospel. You folks received my gospel like it was from an angel. You received me like I was angelic. This was a wonderful experience. And now Paul says, I can't believe what I'm hearing. I'm astonished that you who were so eager to hear this gospel that I proclaimed have moved away from it. What we know is that there were people who had become part of their group that are called the Judaizers in this epistle who in effect said this, Paul was okay, he had a good storyline, and Jesus is great, but you need something else. You also need the law, not just Jesus. Paul says, I am astonished that you're so quickly removed from the gospel that I delivered to you, which is the opposite of what they were saying. The Judaizers said, Jesus is good, but you also need the law. This is the first point of three points of the whole book of Galatians. Again, I'm reducing these entire epistles to usually three points. And the first point is this. Paul's main point, here's the gospel. Faith plus nothing. That's the gospel. Faith plus nothing. Faith in Jesus Christ is righteousness. Faith in Jesus Christ is redemption. Faith in Jesus Christ is restoration. Faith in Jesus Christ is salvation. And nothing else. You don't need to add one thing to it. Faith in Jesus Christ is righteousness. He gets really exaggerated in his language to try to make this point. He says, I want to tell you something. That's the gospel. And if you ever hear that I have changed my mind and I'm saying something different than what I'm saying right now, don't believe me. I'm so convinced that what I say right now is the truth. I want to tell you that if I change my mind, don't follow me. He also goes on to make another rather exaggerated statement because I don't think he would have changed his mind. Here's the exaggerated statement. He says, furthermore, if someone comes to you, even if it's an angel, and gives you another message, another gospel, don't believe the angel. You understand how radical that would be? I mean, you always believed the revelation of an angel. You fell face down. You were in terror of your life. Remember the stories about Jesus. Whenever he was born and the angels appear, the shepherds didn't say, well, let us think about this. Not sure you got it right. Why should we believe you? You just did. 
Paul says, even if an angel shows up and gives you another gospel, don't believe it. This gospel is so important that I want you to understand that, its radical nature. By the way, on one occasion he calls it my gospel, but he doesn't really mean that. Because early on he says, it's not my gospel. It's a gospel that was delivered from Jesus. The gospel I'm telling you about is straight from Jesus, straight from the cross. And this gospel is the only gospel. Not only is it straight from Jesus, straight from the cross, it's nothing new. Sometimes, he says, you might consider things to have changed in a dramatic way such that faith is the new gospel and faith wasn't really the main point of the story in the Old Testament. But let me disabuse you of that notion, he says. Faith was always central to the entire narrative. Take a look at Abraham. It was always about faith. Abraham obeyed God, followed God, and God counted it as righteousness. It wasn't about works of the law. He might have said, and actually did say, the law actually came after Abraham. So the law doesn't save, the law doesn't bring salvation. Abraham wasn't following the law in order to be righteous. Abraham followed God by faith, and God said, because of that, you are righteous. So it was the same back there as it is right now. It's still faith and faith alone. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. And if righteousness, he goes on in his rhetorical comments, could be achieved any other way, if righteousness could be achieved in any other way, then you have canceled out Jesus Christ. You have canceled out the gospel. You've canceled out the message that I'm talking about. It's either Christ and Christ alone, or you reject Christ when you're trying to achieve righteousness some other way. That's pretty dramatic, isn't it? Pretty significant. Pretty straightforward. He goes on to say this about circumcision. Because circumcision apparently was the big one, right? The Judaizer said, it's great about Jesus and all that, but if you really want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be circumcised. And they probably said you needed to follow some other parts of the ceremonial law, but circumcision seems to be the big one. Paul says, let me make another radical statement. If you go out now, after having received this gospel of grace concerning Jesus, and you're circumcised, the gospel won't count for you anymore. Now, did Paul really mean that if anybody actually got physically circumcised, they would lose the gospel? No. He didn't mean that. As a matter of fact, on another occasion, he asked Timothy to be circumcised in order to be a witness among the Jewish population that they were going to minister to. What Paul was saying is if you take circumcision or anything else that's a part of the law, and you go out and do it in order to gain righteousness, you cancel out the gospel. 
So don't go get circumcised in order to be righteous because as soon as you do, there's a cancellation factor taking place. That's how deep this thing called faith goes. It's faith plus nothing. That's how you receive righteousness. That's how you're a part of this thing called the community of Christ followers. That's how you inherit the kingdom of God. Faith plus nothing. Okay. Stop. It's time for application and controversy. How about this? Circumcision and other parts of the law were for these Judaizers basically a litmus test. You got to do this and this and this and then you'll be righteous. What is your litmus test? I want to suggest that you have one. So do I. Probably more than one. I want to suggest that Paul was talking to us and telling us not to be Judaizers too. You see, we're probably not so bold as to say, Jesus is good, but you need more. You know, we'd really be stupid to say that, right? We probably wouldn't be inside the circle of what we call Christianity if we were talking that way, because we wouldn't get it. Because that's pretty clear. It's not Jesus plus a whole bunch of other stuff, and then maybe you get salvation. Uh, We wouldn't say it quite so boldly, but we might say something like this. If he or she was a really devoted follower of Christ, he or she would do or not do X, Y, and Z. If he or she really wanted to be righteous, there's something else he or she ought to do. He or she is not truly devoted unless they manifest these acts of righteousness. What's your litmus test? Is it speaking in tongues? You're not quite there yet. Unless you speak in tongues. Is it some sort of version, theological version of sanctification? Your version of sanctification? If they don't measure up to this, they're not quite there yet. Maybe it's something like this. If that person was really serious about their faith, if they were truly a follower of Jesus Christ, they would be more serious about evangelism. Or they'd be more committed to international missions. Or they would devote themselves more fully to a discipleship program of some sort. That's what they need. What's your litmus test? Or, if that person was truly a follower of Christ, they couldn't take that particular political perspective. Not possible. Christians can't believe that. Christians can't vote for him or her. Take your pick, my friends. It doesn't matter which side you're on. 
don't say to yourself, man, I'm glad he finally got around to talking to those people. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to all of us. <laughs> right? Right or left in between. <laughs> We're all in the crosshairs here. Do you realize how confusing it would be and has been for any number of young Christians who feel the whiplash of your Jesus and statement? Oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to go there. I can't go here. I don't know what it is, but I guarantee you, you all have some sort of litmus test that you have likely improperly imposed on another brother or sister in Christ. Now, I've got to admit that there are certain things that are non-negotiables, right? There are certain lines in the sand that we have to draw. Paul actually drew one. It's called Galatians. He said, this is a non-negotiable, this thing called faith plus nothing. If anybody preaches you anything else, I don't want to hear about it because it's not true. It's a line in the sand. We all do that. But we need to be careful about our lines in the sand. I thought about this a long time. Well, by that I mean most of the week. And I thought, should I? Shouldn't I? Yeah, no. Here I am. I'm going to say it. Is your litmus test your version of women in ministry? I'm talking to everybody, (laughs) one side or the other. It got deathly quiet in the first service too. If we can't talk about these things, what good are we? as a community of faith. If we can't remind ourselves that there may be things that we're holding on to in such a way that it really isn't helpful but might even be divisive, what good are we if we can't talk about those? Now, I'm not suggesting that you don't have an opinion, that you don't hold on to something. I'm asking whatever it is you hold on to, and it's very dear to you. It could be very dear to you. Have you made it a litmus test for faith in the life of others? Have you made it a line in the sand? Here's the thing. Again, Paul put lines in the sand. But when we put a line in the sand, we better be careful that it's not a line that Paul would condemn. Because if we do, we're Judaizers, to use the phrase. We're saying, Jesus plus my litmus test. Okay, now pass the controversy into the next point. The first was faith plus nothing. The second point is freedom with a purpose. Paul says, I don't want you to go nuts here. I don't want you to lose your mind over this thing. 
When I'm talking about freedom in Christ, when I'm talking about not being strapped down by the law, I'm not suggesting that you just live however you want to live. God forbid, he says in another place. God forbid that I should sin in order that grace may abound in my life. Are you kidding me? That's not what I was brought into the family of God for. What is freedom with a purpose? There are two kinds of slavery that Paul addresses in Galatians. The first kind of slavery is legalism, okay? The law. The second kind of slavery is what I'll just call excessive libertarianism, okay? Or lawlessness. Basically, Paul says, you can be enslaved either by the law or you can be enslaved by sin. Don't be enslaved by either. Don't use your freedom, he says, as a license to indulge your sinful nature. If you do that, you don't even understand freedom. You don't even understand grace. You don't even understand forgiveness. You don't understand the gospel. Please don't do that. Use your freedom that Christ purchased with his own blood, as he says in other places, for what it was purchased for. Namely, to live in the Spirit. He goes on to describe what he means when he says, don't uh, allow your freedom to be used to indulge your sinful nature. He says, what I mean by that is don't be involved in sexual immorality or impurity or debauchery. All of these, he says, are forms of slavery. For instance, debauchery and, well, drunkenness and sexual sin and lust of the flesh in general. Paul says, don't be enslaved by those. Um, I'm a runner. I know it doesn't look like it. I don't look like Josiah. I think I'm going to button this now after I mention that. But I'm a runner. I run and... Um, on Friday, I have my long runs, and they're long because I go a long way from me, and they're long because it takes me a long time to get through them. Long for both reasons, but I run, and when I'm done, even in the winter on my long runs, I just can't get enough water. I just drink and drink and drink. Oh, but that's not really true. I can't get enough water and I know when I have gotten enough water I won't go into all the details but I know it it's pretty clear <laughs> yeah I didn't even mean to say that <laughs> here's my main point <laughs> with water I get to a place that I'm satisfied and I don't need another glass. The lust of the flesh is not like that. It's not like drinking water. It's like drinking a sugary soda. Because you know you have another. Not because you need it. And really not even because you want it but because there's a white poison in it called sugar 
And it says more, more, more. Okay, I'm not going to go on to the dietetic stuff. Okay, I'm going to go in there. You know my point, right? The sugar draws you in. You're not drinking to quench your thirst. You're drinking to have more sugar. And the insulin meter goes nuts. And you drink more. Are you satisfied? No. Are you killing yourself? Maybe. It just reminds me of the lust of the flesh. It's like an insatiable appetite. Paul says slavery to the lust of the flesh is an insatiable appetite. Do not turn back to that kind of slavery. Don't use your freedom to do that. If you do that, you've completely messed it up. Because freedom is to be able to live in such a way like you drink water. When you're thirsty, you consume it and you're satisfied. But when you run after the lust of the flesh, you consume and you're never satisfied. So don't be a slave to it. He goes on to describe things like drunkenness and orgies. Out of control. No freedom there. Idolatry. You surrender yourself and everything about yourself and to an idol, no freedom there. Hatred. You take on hatred in your heart towards another person and the only victim in the scenario is you. It's destroying you from the inside out. No freedom there. Discord. It just feeds on itself. No freedom there. Jealousy. You're enslaved by the other. No freedom there. Fits of rage. I think I like this one the best, actually. Is there anything that speaks about being out of control more than fits of rage? You're just overcome by your fit of rage. You can't help it. It possesses you. No freedom there. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition entombs you in the tomb of self. No freedom there. Envy. Do I need to say it? No freedom there. Don't use your freedom to indulge in the sins of the flesh because you'll go backwards and you'll be enslaved. So what should I do, Paul? If I was going to pick one summary phrase from the book of Galatians that I think does the best job of putting it into perspective, I may be terribly wrong about this, but it catches my attention. Paul says, here's what's important. Nothing else is important except this. Faith expressing itself in love. Love of God and love of the other. Love of righteousness and hatred for sin. It's faith expressing itself in love. And how is that lived out? In what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. Instead of hatred, peace and love. Instead of selfishness, 
kindness towards others. Instead of rage, self-control and gentleness. Instead of lust, self-control and, and love. Oh, he says at the end of this on a final flurry, he says, oh, by the way, there's no law against these things. There's laws against all those other things and they're good laws. Don't do it. There's no law against this. There's no law against love and gentleness and kindness and goodness and patience. Live it up, man. Live it up. You were made for that. And then you'll find freedom. Oh, I conclude with an autobiographical comment. Um, I don't need Back to the Future for this book. Actually, I've been to Galatia. No, not physically, but theologically. I've been in a place, and maybe so have you, either in your walk with Christ or in a Christian community that was a part of your life and your history. A place where legalism reigned supreme. I've lived that. And here's what I've learned about legalism. First thing is it makes you believe that you're better than you are. Always. Gets in your bones, man, I'm telling you. You think more highly of yourself than you ought to if you're a legalist. Here's what it does as well. It's almost a contradiction of what I just said, but still true. It produces in you a despair legalism because you can never measure up. You can't measure up to God's standards. You can't measure up to your standards. You can't measure up to anything. I've also learned that it produces a disease. It's called judgmentalism. And it's rampant in your spirit when you're a legalist. You judge everybody all the time about everything. I've also learned that legalism just sucks the joy right out of your life. Like a gigantic universal vacuum sweeper. It sucks all the joy right out of you. You know what else I've learned? I've learned over the years that I'm equally susceptible to both legalism and lawlessness. Legalism and libertarianism. I can fall off of the precipice in either direction and have routinely. And probably on Monday, both of them will emerge. But here's the most incredible news that I've learned from all of this. I've learned in the middle of all of this, by grace, 
an increasing understanding of my deep sin produces in me a continual delight in the grace of God. That's the gospel, my friends. Can I go back two weeks to Romans chapter 8? How can that be true? Why is it true that a deep introspective analysis of my deep sin causes me to re-absolutely delight in the grace of Jesus Christ? Because as Paul said, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. For those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. He says it again in Galatians. My friends, you're called to liberty. And part of your liberty means looking at the depth of your own depravity and seeing the incredible grace of God. You can exalt in it. It goes both directions. Deep sin and deeper grace. Is that amazing or what? It's the gospel. It's faith. It's given to you by the grace of God. Hold on to it. It's life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel of grace and the fact that it is uh, received by us through faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's remarkably simple. And it's, well, some days terribly difficult because either we feel self-righteous or we feel overwhelmed by sin. Remind us, Lord, of who we are. We are chosen by you. Those of us who have named Jesus Christ and have faith in you, Lord, we're chosen by you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless and your sight in love. You adopted us like dear children to the praise of your glorious grace, which you've freely given us in the one you love, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May we walk from this place, Lord, not with condemnation, but overwhelmed by grace. May we walk from this place, Lord, not enslaved by legalism or enslaved by sin, but freed to live according to the Spirit. May we not only walk from this place with that disposition and that mindset, but may it be true beginning 8 o'clock Monday morning on Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, until once again on resurrection day we come back and reorient our hearts and minds around the truth of the gospel and we go out to live it man what fortunate people we are Lord to have been redeemed by your grace make us grateful may we share it with the world in the name of Christ our Lord we pray amen would you please stand?